Well, in the last several chapters, as we approach Numbers chapter 16, there have been some difficult things for the Israelites to accept. If we go back to Numbers chapter 14, the Israelites refused to go into the promised land. And the decision of the Lord was that the people would therefore have to turn around and go back into the wilderness and wander until everybody who was 20 years old and upward at that time dropped dead in the wilderness. So the Lord's like, all right, you don't want to go in? Then you won't go in. And you can die in the wilderness. Well, when they heard the decision, they said, okay, okay, we will go in. But it was too late. Now, how did the Israelites find out about this decision of the Lord? Numbers 14, verse 26 says this, And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel with which they grumble against me. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, etc., etc. So how did the people find out about the Lord's decision that they would all die in the wilderness? It was mediated to them through Moses and Aaron. Then, we come across to Numbers chapter 15. While the people of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. Numbers 15, 32. We looked at this section last week. They put this man in custody because it had not been clear what should be done to him. Numbers 15, 35 says, And the Lord said to Moses, This man shall be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So, how did everybody realize that this man should die? And who commanded them to stone him to death? Well, ultimately, it was the Lord. But again, the decision was mediated through Moses. And Moses gave this commandment here. Then, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and to remember all the commandments of the Lord, to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. So who gave this message? Moses. All right, so recently the people have been getting pretty fed up with Moses and his strict leadership of this country. After all, Moses told them to go back into the wilderness and that they can't go up into the promised land. And then when this poor guy was just trying to build a fire, it was Moses who said that he needs to be stoned. And then Moses said that we are inclined to whore after the inclinations of our hearts and our eyes. Uh, So now we understand the context of Numbers chapter 16. The people are just getting fed up with the strict leadership of the people of Israel. Namely, 
Moses and Aaron. Number 16 and verse 3. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. You have gone too far. Looking back at the, or alluding back to the practice of the commandment here to put tassels on the garments. They say, for all in the congregation are holy. Every one of them. They take the, they take the bit about being, putting tassels on the garments as a marker of being holy to the Lord. They lay hold of that, they latch on to that, and they go, see, you told us to put tassels on because we're to be holy to the Lord. So you, with your strict leadership of this nation, have gone too far in saying that we're inclined to whore after the inclinations of our hearts and our eyes. You've gone too far in stoning this man to death and telling us to turn and wander around. Who made you a leader anyway? You have exalted yourself above the assembly of the Lord. Numbers 16 and verse 3. This is what's happening here in this passage. It's Korah who is a Levite, but not a priest. And then there are three sons of Reuben, three Reubenites mentioned. Dathan and Abiram and On. They're in Numbers 16 and verse 1. So here comes a Levite, but not a priest. And then three sons of Reuben, three Reubenites, who are neither Levites nor priests. These guys are the ringleaders, but then there's 250 other men, well-known men in the congregation who say, yeah, what is with this? Moses and Aaron exalting themselves over the assembly of the Lord. We're all holy. Who says they're any better than us? And look, look at the decisions that they're making to make us turn around into the wilderness and to kill someone who's just trying to build a fire. Yeah, we need to put Moses and Aaron in their place. They have gone too far. Now, this accusation that Moses had exalted himself above the assembly of the Lord is absolutely absurd. Moses was a reluctant leader from the beginning. If we go way back to when God appeared to him from the burning bush, Exodus chapter 3 and Exodus chapter 4, we read this exchange where Moses is trying to wiggle out from under this responsibility that he is being given to go and get the people of Israel up out of Egypt. And in Exodus 4.13, Moses just finally says it plainly and bluntly after the Lord rebuts all of his excuses. Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Moses, Moses has not exalted himself above the assembly of the Lord. Moses, in fact, still resents the responsibility of leading the people. Moses does not want to be their leader. Numbers chapter 11, verses 14 and 15. I am not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, in other words, if you're going to make me carry these people, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, that I might not see my wretchedness. He doesn't like being their leader. Just a couple of verses earlier, he says to the Lord, 
why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? That you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give to their fathers? They're not my kids. Why should I have to be responsible for these people? This is Moses' attitude here. The idea that Moses has exalted himself to be the leader of this people is patently absurd. Moses does not grab at more authority, but repeatedly tries to relinquish it. He's constantly asking God that he might not be the leader of these people. Then Moses has the people's best interests at heart. In what has to be a supernatural way. After the way that the people treat Moses, the way we see Moses regularly interceding for the people has to be a work of God in Moses' heart, a supernatural love for these people. In Numbers 14, verses 12 to 19, Moses intercedes for the people when God says, I will strike them with a pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make of you, Moses, a nation greater and mightier than they. Look, many a man would just say, well, Lord, you know I haven't grasped that greatness for myself, but according to your sovereign will, if you should see fit to exalt me in this way, who am I? to argue with thee, Lord. You know, do, do as you please, and I, your humble servant, shall be the patriarch of this new people. Right? Many a man would do that. But Moses intercedes and pleads for the people. He says, no, don't do this, Lord. Right? The Egyptians will hear of it, and all the other nations will hear of it, and, and people will say, hey, you brought the people up out of Egypt, but you weren't able to get them into the promised land, and it's going to look bad on you, Lord. So Moses is concerned for the glory of the Lord and intercedes for the people on that basis. Little did they know just how close they were to the Lord striking them from the face of the earth. And then Numbers 16, this passage that we're looking at tonight, if we go a little bit later down and we skip ahead a little bit, in verses 20 to 22, and Moses does the same thing again. The Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and will you be angry with all the congregation? Here they are again, interceding for these people. And that's not the only time in this passage. Uh, I didn't read as far down. We'll, we'll look at this a little bit more next week. But again in verses 46 and 47, Moses, the Lord causes a plague to break out in the camp. And Moses said to Aaron, take your censer and put fire on it from the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. Moses is not guilty as charged. These people think that Moses has exalted himself above the people and that Moses is just 
self-serving in his leadership of the children of Israel. And this is not the case. Moses is not Moses' choice to lead Israel. But to the contrary, Moses is the Lord's chosen servant. Moses is not self-seeking, but Moses seeks the glory of the Lord and the good of the people of Israel. And so this criticism that the people bring, in this case, is completely unfounded. With all this in mind, let's look a little more closely at the complaint of Korah's group here. And first, let's see the arrogance of it. Why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? The implication of this passage, or, or sorry, this statement, this question, is that Moses is not actually a better man than the man making the accusation. Right? Now, we've just briefly reviewed the last few chapters, and we've seen what an exemplary man Moses is to love and to serve these people. And how not self-seeking Moses is. How loving he is. How Godward he is. How filled his heart is with a supernatural love for the people. Moses is a sinner, yes, but he is a good man. Now these guys, on the other hand, they grumble against Moses and they want to exalt themselves up to Moses' level. We read in Romans that we should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought. It seems self-evident, looking at this passage, that that is precisely what these men are doing here. They are thinking of themselves more highly than they ought. They're not recognizing Moses is a good man, God has made a good choice in putting Moses above us. They're looking at themselves and having an overly inflated view of themselves and taking an overly cynical and negative look at Moses and reducing Moses in their own estimation and exalting themselves in their own estimation. There is arrogance to this complaint. Secondly, there is profound ingratitude and a sense of entitlement attached to this complaint. Moses asks rhetorically in verses 8 and following, Is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to him, or to them, sorry, and that he has brought you near him and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you? These men have failed to see just what a privileged estate the Levites have been brought into. Not only to have been redeemed by the Lord from Egypt, but to have been brought into the tabernacle service to be near the holy things. If someone, again, did not have such an arrogant attitude, but had a right sense of themselves, 
to think, wow, the privilege to be so near the holy things of the God of Israel and to be involved in some small way to have the opportunity to do some part in the worship and the exaltation of this great God of Israel. Who am I? Who am I that the Lord should call me into this service? But they're like, here we are carrying the golden utensils through the wilderness while Moses gets to be up front leading everybody and speaking on behalf of God to everybody. Why should I have to carry this stupid candlestick? Why can't I be out there like Moses telling people what the Lord says? Why can't I go up the mountain and why can't I come down with my face shining? Right? This is, there's a profound sense of ingratitude and a sense of entitlement attached to the complaint here. Next, the complaint is ultimately Godward. Moses says in verse 11, it is against the Lord that you and your company have gathered together. Because it is the Lord who has sent Moses to do all these works according to Numbers 16 and verse 28. And it has not been of Moses' own accord. And implicitly Aaron also. The Lord has installed Aaron and it hasn't been of Aaron's own accord. Because it is the Lord who has set Moses and Aaron above the assembly. The complaint here is against the Lord. So let's look now at the response of the Lord to all this. As I already alluded to in verses 20 and 21. The Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. The Lord is angry about the rebellion of these people. The Lord takes this complaint against Moses and Aaron personally because it is He who has installed Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron intercede and say, Shall one man sin and you be angry with all the congregation? And the Lord justly says, Say to the congregation then, Get away from the dwelling of Korah and Dathan and Abiram. We know from our reading earlier, as we read the whole passage, verses 1 to 40, we know that the Lord causes the ground to open up and to swallow these men. And note, in verse 27, that not only did it swallow up these men, but it swallowed up these men together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. Mark well the justice of the Lord in this matter. And the severity of the Lord in swallowing up these men together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. The Lord is angry. The Lord renders a just penalty. And in doing so, the Lord vindicates Moses and Aaron. As Moses says, look, if these guys die a normal way, then you know the Lord hasn't sent me. But if the ground swallows them up, then you know that the Lord endorses my leadership and the leadership of Aaron. Sure enough, that's what happens. And so the Lord vindicates his servants. Let's look at a human level here. 
We've seen the complaint, which is ultimately Godward, and we've seen the response of the Lord. Let's look at the response of Moses to this complaint. The first thing Moses does is he demonstrates confidence in the Lord's vindication. They bring this complaint to him. And the first thing that Moses says is, In the morning the Lord will show who is His. So Moses doesn't actually come to his own defense. He says, alright, you know what? In the morning the Lord will settle this matter. Look at the confidence that Moses has in the Lord's vindication. This confidence in the Lord's vindication doesn't stop him from rebuking and exhorting the complainers in verses 7 to 10. Nor does it stop Moses from being very angry, according to verse 15. But Moses doesn't stray beyond what is appropriate and what is legitimate in this particular instance in terms of rebuking and exhorting and being indignant. Being angry at unrighteous, false accusations is legitimate. Rebuking and confronting false accusations is legitimate. But Moses' confidence that the Lord will vindicate him keeps him from overreacting and going too far the other way and being unnecessarily defensive and unnecessarily aggressive towards the people who oppose Him. Confidence in the Lord's vindication makes us secure people who are able both to be strong enough not to back down in a conflict, but also to be restrained enough not to go too far in a conflict. Confidence in the Lord's vindication anchors us and gives us firm footing with which to engage in conflict in an appropriately strong and yet restrained manner. Moses also intercedes for the innocent. Again, here we see restraint. If a bunch of the representative leaders of the people came to a lesser man with a criticism like this, and the Lord said He was going to wipe out the whole bunch, a lesser man again might say, you know what, Lord, go ahead and do it. I've had enough of these people. You want to kill them? Kill them. You know? I mean, who am I to judge? But you're the holy judge of all the earth. You want to do it? Go ahead. But, the Lord, but Moses here intercedes for the innocent. And in verses 36 to 40, that intercession, by the way, is in verses 20 to 22. And in verses 36 to 40, Moses, under the instruction of the Lord, leverages this incident as a warning for the rest of the assembly. The censors which were offered up had become holy and the Lord instructs Moses to have them hammered out and to plate the altar with these as a reminder of the danger of exalting ourselves above what is warranted 
and grumbling against the Lord's servants and against the Lord himself. That's the response of Moses. Let's make some applications here before we draw to a close. Ultimately, we are following Jesus through a wilderness on our way to a promised land. And Moses is primarily a Christ figure in the typology of the whole Exodus narrative. Be careful not to adopt an arrogant and ungrateful attitude towards Christ's instructions as you make your way through this wilderness. As if you really ought to be a leader or a co-leader of your own life rather than a follower of Christ. It was patently absurd for the people to criticize Moses when Moses was so plainly serving the people for God's glory and for their good. And it is, it is manifestly absurd for us to criticize Christ Jesus when He is so manifestly serving us, has served us for God's glory and for our good. The Lord has set Him up as the head of the church. The Lord has appointed him as a high priest. No one takes this honor upon himself, Hebrew says, but he serves when he is called and appointed by the Lord. And the Lord has set his son in Zion, as we talked about this morning. The Lord has set up his son as a high priest for his people. Why would we think that we should be able to do church the way we think we should do church? Why would we think that we should be able to change Christianity the way we want to change Christianity? Why would we think that we should be able to live the way that we want to live and that Christ has gone too far in exalting himself above the rest of the assembly? Don't miss that obvious point that Christ is in charge of us. And Christ is in charge of us by God's appointment. The man Christ Jesus, the Messiah, has been exalted above his brethren by God himself. He is the head of the church. He is the high priest of the church. And we have no authority to quarrel with him or to resist or to resent his commands and his instructions, which he has passed down to us through the apostles and the prophets. That's the first and most primary application. The second one is this. There may be times that you are upset with your pastor. Whether it's me or in the future, someone else. And you might bristle at the word of God handed down to you through him. Remember what happened in this passage. The people were upset. You have gone too far. You told us to turn around and go back to the wilderness. 
You told us we had to stone this man who was gathering sticks on the Sabbath. You told us that we're inclined to whore after the inclinations of our hearts and our eyes. You have gone too far. Look, there may be times when you might feel that I've gone too far. There may be times when you feel that, you know, Pastor Chris in Toronto has gone too far. Or in the future, if we have other pastors serving in this congregation, there may be times when you feel he has gone too far. He has simply gone too far. Since I'm a sinner, since Pastor Chris is a sinner, and since any pastor you may have in the future will also be a sinner, it may be possible that we have gone too far. And sometimes this opposition may be warranted. But if you're just mad because he told you what the Lord says, if you're just mad because he told you what the Lord says, be careful that you are not found to be opposing the Lord. Be careful that you're not bristling against the Lord's instructions, simply coming to you through his mouthpiece. A man called and ordained to preach God's word to you and to lead you in the way that you should go according to the scriptures. That's the second application. Thirdly, in a very real sense, we are all called to function to some extent as Moses did. You're not leading millions of people through the wilderness. But we are all called to deliver to other people the word of God. Right? The Lord says to us, and we say it to the people. After all, what did Jesus say? All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. What this means is you're going to have to talk to unbelievers and tell them what the Lord says as part and parcel of carrying out that great commission. What it also means is you're going to have to talk to believers who are not yet observing all that Christ has commanded. And they're believers, yes, but they need to be taught to observe all that Christ has commanded. When you go and you talk to unbelievers and you say, thus saith the Lord, some people are going to bristle at that and be like, you've gone too far. When you talk to Christians who need to be taught and need to be instructed, who have not yet learned to observe all that Christ has commanded, some of them are going to say, you've gone too far. You are going to encounter this kind of opposition that Moses encountered in this passage today. Even when your heart is pure, seeking only the glory of God and the good of the people around you, if you are a faithful mouthpiece of the Lord, evangelizing and making disciples, there will be times when people oppose you and say you've gone too far. Who do you think you are to talk to me like this? People will bristle at God's commands, whether from the mouth of Jesus, whether from the mouth of Moses, 
whether from the mouths of pastors or whether from your mouth. We can look to Moses' example here then. We can learn from it. We can be helped by it. Again, as we saw, we, we, like Moses, can be confident in the Lord's vindication. And that's the baseline for our response. Look. In the morning, after this night is over and the bright and morning star rises, as we talked about this morning in our Revelation series, at the end of all things, the Lord will show who is His. The Lord will vindicate. And you will see that all I'm doing is passing on to you what the Lord told me through the Word of God. We may legitimately feel indignation, become very angry. We may indeed rebuke and exhort, not beyond measure, but that is not wrong. Be angry and do not sin, the scripture instructs. Not, don't be angry. It's right and normal, godly and psychologically healthy to get angry sometimes. Sometimes there's something wrong if you don't get angry. We ought to feel a righteous anger when people bristle at the word of the Lord. But we restrain it because it's not about our ego. It's about God's glory. And it's about the good of the people that we're dealing with. Like Moses did in this passage, we can intercede for the innocent. We don't go out and try to evangelize and get verbally assaulted by someone that we meet out there on the road. And say, well, forget this. All these lost people, they could just go to hell for all I care. No, on the opposite, to the contrary. We intercede for the innocent. And even if we, even if we recognize that this person may be a Korah, a vessel of wrath prepared for destruction, we can also plead with the Lord, be compassionate and don't destroy all the unbelievers along with this hard-hearted and impenitent man. We can intercede for the innocent and keep from being jaded and cynical about every unbeliever because we encountered one who opposed us with all the vehemence that he could muster. And then lastly, we can warn as Moses did. The observers of situations like this. In our day and age, we don't like to embarrass anyone. But in the pastoral epistles, Paul called names, you know. And sometimes there is a situation where someone bristles at the Word of God and hardens themselves against the Word of God 
and opposes the Word of God. And for the sake of other people, it sometimes may be helpful to call names and say, don't harden yourself as so-and-so did. As you saw, as you observed that so-and-so did, don't harden yourself to the Word of God. Remember Paul said, Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me. Right? Or there was, uh, I think it was Demetrius, the silversmith, going off the top of my head, who likes to put himself first. Is that his name? Bunch of delinquents, no one knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> but the point is, the point is that Paul called names, right? And so sometimes when we find that someone has really bristled at the Word of God, it's not inappropriate to make it a memorial as these holy censers were hammered into plates and attached to the altar so that everyone would remember the rebellion of Korah and the way things end up when someone opposes the Word of God. It's not wrong to do likewise. Like Moses, we should not be self-seeking. We should be concerned first and foremost about the glory of God and the good of people around us. We should be like Moses, who was like Jesus, who did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself, became a servant, was faithful unto death, even death on a cross. So each of you should look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Faithfully transmit the Word of God. Understand that some people will bristle against it. Comfort yourself in God's vindication and persist in the activity. Rebuking, exhorting, interceding, and so on and so forth. Praying that the Lord will spare and be merciful, at least to some, even if some will harden themselves all the way to their deathbed.